0: Spencer, we are in the Tour de France, which means you are busy, busy, busy posting all these stories to velnews.com. In fact, I'm sure you're so busy, you don't have time to even ride your bike, right? No, Fred, actually, I figured out a way to do it this year. In years past, I've had to just sit out all of July with all this work, but... I've got a new Cyclops Hammer indoor trainer. So I can ride day or night, anytime. I can get on Zwift, get on Ruby, all the virtual training apps. This is a direct drive trainer, so it's super quiet. That means there's no tire rubbing on a drum, annoying your neighbors downstairs or anything like that. Super quiet, super convenient. uh, And uh, it's just a great way to stay fit. Yeah, you know, riding the trainer, I feel like in the past was loud, cumbersome, heavy. And the Cyclops trainers, uh, namely the Hammer, man, they really overcome a lot of the hurdles associated with it. And you know, Spencer Cyclops, part of the Saris family of companies based in Wisconsin. They're a company that gives a lot of money to bike advocacy over $100,000 every year because Saris is a company that believes in having safe roads for all of us. So thanks to Saris and Cyclops for sponsoring this week's episode of the Vell News Podcast. Let's get on with the show. You are tuned into the Vell News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer joined by Andrew Hood, European correspondent, and we are in the lovely medieval city of Carcassonne in southern France. It's a wonderful, like, medieval wall still up. It's a UNESCO heritage site. It's this beautiful town, but Hoodie, I want you to set the scene for where we are right now because it doesn't, I'm looking around, doesn't really look like a UNESCO world heritage site here. Yeah, we are. I think in the back of the press
1: room, it was yeah. just too hot and stinky in there. And that, man, believe me, by week two of the Tour de France, everyone is very—you know—you can smell them before you see them. A uh, couple of dumpsters, mm. a tractor trailer. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's there's a beautiful building, a you know, like castle here,
0: medieval, world class. We're not even close to it. No, we are not. We are surrounded by dumpsters and uh, the various uh, mechanical devices that the Tour de France uses to move stuff around. But hey. We got lots to talk about because it is rest day number two of the Tour de France. We have two weeks of racing under the belt. We have one week of racing to go. And hoodie, we have our first bona fide polemica. That's right. This year's Tour de France has its first major controversy because yesterday, stage 15 of the Tour de France finished in Carcassonne. And uh, about 40 minutes after the finish, we started to get some buzz some news coming down the pike that one of the most controversial riders in the peloton Gianni muscone of Team Sky had been ejected from the race and not just ejected for you know cycling reasons but for, 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 for punching a guy oh Johnny 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 what can we do with you I know you know it's one thing if it's like uh, it's one thing if it's Nasser Buhani but Gianni Moscone as uh, Vela news podcast listeners may know is uh, has a bit of a track record with um, saying awful things to riders, being a little argy-bargy. Uh, he was disqualified from Worlds last year for holding on to a car. So this was a fourth strike against him. And so when something like that happens on the eve of the rest day where these teams have press conferences, uh, hoodie did, uh, did you think that this might change the ambiance at Team Sky's Monday press conference. Yeah,
1: yeah, the uh, timing couldn't have been better for Team Sky. I you know they've had a lot of uh, heat on them already during this tour. People are spitting on Froome, throwing liquids on them. We're not quite sure what those are. They're shoving Chris Froome. They're getting booed almost every day. They had that mall case, and here comes Johnny muscone <laughs> Johnny Moscone, gets a bust out of his shell, throws a throws a punch at with the Fortunato guy, and it's such a contrast because when you talk to Moscone is a real mellow dude. You would never know that the guy is like a, 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 a you know, bona fide you know, baller killer. <laughs>
0: God. Well, the writer in question who was punched was Eli Gesbert of Team Fortuna Samsic and shortly after the news came down, a video clip emerged of the incident and it was very shortly after the peloton had left the start city, start city of Milau. It was about 800 meters after the start line. There's attacks going off, riders are trying to get into the breakaway. It was a perfect day for the breakaway so a bunch of riders are trying to get up there and from the clip you can see uh, Eli Gesbert is riding near the front, his teammate is trying to get into the breakaway and Muscone looks back, sees him, and swings his fist, and in my viewing, it looks like he does connect maybe with the helmet, maybe like a violent tap of the helmet. Um, some people are saying that maybe he didn't connect, but either way, um, the race officials saw this. Apparently, there was a re- an official review that went on, and then after the stage was finished, they decided to kick him out. Now, Hoodie, this is an important story for a number of reasons which we're going to get into. The first of which, though, is that this is another example of the Tour de France's instant replay rules being used to kick a rider out. So what can you tell us about the uh, the instant replay rules, their roots and origins, and why they're so important? Yeah, it's a new rule that, that the UCI rolled out coming into 2018.
1: It's it's it was more than anything, it was just formalizing a process that they'd already kind of done in the past where you know there'll be a video or some TV images of a rider doing something. That's what happened last year where Buhani actually punched Jack Bauer and I think it was stage 10 in last year's tour. You know, much worse situation. They're really coming in for the sprint, I think it was about five or ten K's to go. You know, yesterday's was on the rollout. But they've also designated this kind of TV commissaire, someone who kind of monitors social media, looks at all the video feeds, kind of watches all the different live feeds going on during the race so that they don't miss anything because in the past it was only what the uci commissaires saw there's several in the race half dozen on a motorbikes, there's a few more tooling around in cars and that's where every day we see the jury report they're handing out you know Uh, for people doing these different infractions, taking a a sticky bottle, going to the bathroom where they shouldn't in front of the fans and a whole, you know, the rule book, it's this arcane thing of thousands of pages and little uh, subtext. So this is a way for the UCI to formalize this process. So what happened yesterday, the Fort Daniel complained to the UCI. They went back and reviewed some of this video and uh, muscone the infraction was serious enough. They put a grave infraction in the jury report yesterday. Moscone out of the Tour de France, and it just kind of creates all these issues for Sky. It piles onto the bad optics, plus they're one rider down going into the final part of the Tour de France. Yeah,
0: and you know, I was expecting Sky to maybe push back on it, but they didn't. They very quickly released a statement from team principal Sir Dave Brailsford who said we support and accept the decision by the race organizers to exclude Gianni Moscon from the Tour de France Gianni is desperately disappointed in his behavior and knows that he has let himself the team and the race down we will address this incident with Gianni once the tour is complete and decide if any further action should be taken I would like to offer my sincere apologies to both Ellie Gesbert and team Fortunato Samsic for this unacceptable incident now I read that uh, I read the statement and I see a couple things missing the first is uh, whether or not they're going to can Muscon entirely, whether he is going to get sacked for this. Um, and then the other thing I feel like that is missing is, um, yeah, you know, basically like what's Team Sky's uh, tactical w- way to get over this? You know, they're down, like you said, they're down a man. Um, and and what does that look like going forward? And we were able to talk to David Brailsford at the uh, press conference today, and he addressed some of those issues. But I don't know. I was a little surprised to see them so quickly um, accept the punishment, not push back. I feel like we get used to Sky pushing back on um, race juries and commissars, and to just say, "Okay, we'll take it."
1: Well, I think that part of the reason might be, you know, the rider involved. You know, Moscone has a little bit of a track record here. Um, you get the sense that, you know, maybe uh, Brailsford doesn't want to deal with it now make a decision in the heat of the moment so they're going to deal with it after the tour they got obviously more important things to do right now which is win the Tour de France so they don't want to be distracted right now about a little Moscone thing um, and I think this you know reading between the tea leaves there I think it might be the end of the road for Moscone it's hard to say oh man Airbus over uh, we're
0: <laughs> apparently right in the landing pattern for Carcassonne uh, International Carcassonne
1: International Airport <laughs> So I think that uh, I think Team Sky has given uh, Moscone chances. They've obviously, you know, dealt with a couple of the issues, very high-profile, controversial issues. So it'd be interesting to see if they stand by their man one more time, or if they just kind of give him the boot. And then on the second issue, in terms of how this might affect the team. You can imagine they might have had a lot more pushback had it been a Kiwatowski, a Pools, or a Bonau. Three riders that are absolutely critical to the team in the Pyrenees, whereas Muscone, and in fact, Brailsford said it during the press conference, they would have felt his presence a lot more had it been before the team time trial and the stage across the pave, which is almost why they brought him here in the first
0: place. So here's my take. I think you've got to get rid of Muscon. I mean, obviously, there is the sort of basic knee-jerk reaction of, oh, my God, you know, he, ra- he reacted in violence. This is um, the first of four incidents now in which he's been caught or accused. Um, the fourth incident was he was accused of intentionally crashing Sebastian Reichenbach at a race. UCI eventually cleared him of that. They said there was no evidence. So um, that was just an accusation. Not a, not a confirmed incident, but the other two, uh, the other three were um, using a racial slur against Kevin Reza at the Tour Romandy last year and then holding on to a car at World Championships where he was kicked out. Um, but I think you got to get rid of him because I feel like this type of action at this type of moment in the race shows a real... Lack of intelligence and a real lack of respect for the team. Um, I think on sporting reasons alone, you get rid of Muscone because you know what? As strong as he may be, he made a decision that cost the team a valuable member. I mean, we're at eight-man teams now, so uh, every member member to counts. So he made a really poor decision that cost them a valuable member heading into uh, the decisive part of this race. Um, He made a decision that was just going to bring so much more negative attention to this team that already struggles with optics, that already has PR people who are uh, flustered and frustrated at all times because of all of the negative PR that comes to them, uh, especially these days. And he just made made a decision that just really made life difficult for them for the rest of the race. And so I think that on that alone, that's enough to sack Gianni Muscone. That makes the risk much greater than the reward. I don't know. Do you have a, do you have a take on it? Yeah, I, I kind of uh,
1: agree with you. I mean, this guy took a big chance by bringing him here anyway. I was kind of surprised to see his name on that list when he was probably the biggest surprise for me was to see Muscone on this uh, eight-man starting list for this year's Tour de France. And, I mean, you just basically said all the reasons. I, mean, I guess the only thing is, you know, we perhaps don't have you know their version of of all the facts of what happened in all these incidents you know who knows we don't exactly know what provoked these things we just see the end result of okay you drove a guy off the road and we were talking earlier you know there is a lot of stuff that goes on in the peloton every day uh, a lot of it considered just part of racing a lot of its ego a lot of its testosterone a natural testosterone by the way um <laughs> and you know a lot of it's uh, you know fighting for position And they're out there every day with the the, the tense pressure on them just being on these small roads you know the stress for these guys is huge and there's different ways that people different people deal with it and obviously it's inappropriate the way that Mascona's is acting but you know do you do you give a guy a chance just at least hear his side of the story before you you rush to judgment and another thing we were talking about as well is how you know there's no more uh patron really in the bunch you know back in the old days a guy like Buhani punches jack bauer you know Bernard Hinault would have taken care of that. Or Lance Armstrong would have taken care of that. And uh, Froome was asked this year, are you the new Patron of the Peloton? And he said, we don't have a Patron anymore. Everyone just kind of does their own thing. Um, so I think there's part of that self-policing for good or for bad that used to exist in the Peloton doesn't exist anymore. And I think people are just, uh, you know, it's just kind of this, the Peloton is this beast of equals per, in a way that has, we haven't seen it before.
0: I think another interesting component to take in here, it, it, and, and I'm with you, Hoodie, you know, you spend time with bike riders talking about what life is like in the Peloton, and you hear lots of stories of elbows and pushes, and, you know, the occasional smack or the occasional whack, you know, maybe not as blatantly violent as what Gianni Moscon did to Ellie Gesbert, but basically stuff right up to that point. And that's just a daily occurrence, especially in flat stages and classics races, in some of these really tough competitive races on narrow roads. Um, But you just, you know, you don't see it all because... This was, uh, much of cycling has existed in an era where the uh, ins and outs of what goes on in the peloton is not always caught on camera. And it's only been in the last few years with the addition of um, cameras on the handlebars and, um, you know, round the clock, basically surveillance-style cameras from helicopters that you can really see all this stuff. And we start to see things like Nibbly hanging onto the car and people pushing each other off the road. And so you wonder if some of the culture, the culture of racing that some of these guys grew up in, which was pretty argy-bargy and violent, is just now um, out there for us all to see. And it creates these optical
1: nightmares. Yeah, it is amazing. It's almost a uh, twenty-four-seven blanket coverage of all these events. Like, like that video clip we saw of, of Nibali's crash up on yeah. uh, Alpe d'Huez. Just when uh, some rowdy, drunken fan got his uh, camera strap caught across his hood of his. Of, of his and, 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 you know, stuff like that, We just there's
0: almost no secrets in the peloton, at least during the race. So Muscon's ejection came on stage 15, which was the third in a row of some interesting stages. You know, we left the Alps. We headed into the Massif Central, and we saw a scenario in which breakaways became really important in the Tour de France. You know, I think a lot of us um, looked at this year's tour and predicted there would be ample opportunity for breakaways because of the shrinking down to eight-man teams, because of how difficult the Alps were, and then because of the dynamic that we saw happen in the Alps, which was uh, a bunch of sprinters leave the race because they were either time cut or they abandoned. And what happens when that happens is that you have fewer teams that have a motivation to control the peloton. So on the stage two Menda, I believe that was stage 14, we saw a breakaway of like 30. And it was the same thing as stage 15. It was a really big breakaway and Team Sky looked willing to let some of these breakaways go. So as we look at the GC right now, we still have Garrett Thomas leading the race, um, Chris Froome in second place, down a minute and 39 seconds, and Tom Dumoulin back at 150. Now, with that break, with the breakaway dynamic, and all these guys then um, fighting for the GC, how do you see the next few stages playing out? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because I think this is the
1: first time since. Mr. Chris Froome of the Chris Froome era, that he is not leading the race by the second rest day. This is the first time since he started his dominance, really going back to the 2013 Tour de France, when he is not in the yellow jersey on the second rest day going into the last week. So right there already, that opens up a pretty interesting dynamic of what is Froome going to do to win this race. Then we've got the drama. Really, there's four guys who can win this tour still, which usually has not been the occasion in the last (laughs) several years of the Tour de France. So this is actually quite interesting. We've got Dumoulin and Roglic really within reach of winning and beating and dethroning uh, Team Sky. So right there already, I think this sets up a very interesting dynamic going into the Pyrenees. Of course, it could all end in one big, gigantic Froome acceleration. But I don't know. People are saying that Froome doesn't, you know, he's not quite as sharp as uh, he was in his previous years. He's getting older. And I think the, the Giro is having an effect on him. You know, if he can win this thing, he has to see Garrett Thomas crack, and Froome going just squeeze out the win.
0: Well, today at Sky's press conference, we saw the first hints from Chris Froome that he might be content to see Garrett Thomas win. Um, there were a lot of questions, including one by you. Uh, to Chris Froome asking about his um, mentality around being you know, behind Garrett Thomas. And up to this point, Team Sky, they've been very good about saying, oh, well, well, co-leaders, and you know, we don't have one leader, we have two leaders, and we're in this great position because if Garrett should falter, then Chris is there to pick up the slack, and if Chris should falter, Garrett's in the lead, so here we go. Um, I think all of us, though, have been in the back of our minds thinking, Chris Froome's waiting to attack. You know, Chris Froome is just kind of biding his time and waiting for Garen Thomas to show some weakness and maybe escape off the front with a rival or in a move that is supposedly marking someone else, like gain that advantage. Uh, But basically, he said today that, you know, he would be very happy if Garen Thomas won. He's more than willing to drop back to help, or to, to work for Garen Thomas. And if should he falter, he does not expect Garen Thomas to fall back to work for him. Well, I don't think he said he would help Thomas. Yeah, he said that if he, if he should falter, he does you not expect, expect Thomas, Thomas to. to work for him.
1: And then Thomas basically said the same thing. Yeah. Because if you, if you stop to help your teammate, that means both of you are gonna lose time, obviously.
0: As long as there's a Team Skyrider on the top step in Paris, I'm happy. And then I think the other great comments, this came from your question, which was about attacking. Uh, You basically said, you know, well, you know, could you see yourself attacking Thomas? All this talk about attacking, not attacking, we're in this amazing position. We're first and second on the general classification. It's not up to us to be attacking. It's for all the other riders in the peloton to make up time on us and dislodge us from the position we're in. So, Hoodie, what do you make of the comments from Chris Froome today? Do you think that this is him uh, potentially acknowledging a situation where he's happy to lose? Or do you th- see this as something else?
1: Well, I, I think that he's just being realistic, really. Um, Garen Thomas is his buddy. They've been on the same team since uh, more than 10 years. They're on the same team now. Um, I think the team still wants to see Chris Froome win. I think they still expect him to win. But if Chris Froome does, if, if Garen Thomas doesn't crack, I mean, how, how can you how can you rationalize attacking your teammate and buddy, who is well ahead of you and GC, if, it's, if you just blatantly attack him, I mean that would just be a huge scandal in many ways. Yeah. Because um, if you see, I mean, if Garen Thomas can just get over these three uh, stages in the Pyrenees, I mean he could win the bloody thing. There's no way that uh, Froome or Dumoulin are going to take that much time back on Garen Thomas in that final time trial. But if it's it's not all going to be the same as it is right now. We've got three very hard days in the Pyrenees over the next four stages. So. I don't think anyone expects the time differences to stay static all the way to that final time trial.
0: I don't either. I read these comments and thought, okay, Chris Froome is now basically explaining to viewers why he's not going to go on the attack um, if no, if, if unprovoked. Um, I can definitely still see a scenario, though, in which someone who is within striking range goes on the attack and Chris Froome goes with him. And, it, it, you know, the determining factor of whether he is indeed riding for Thomas or riding for himself, will be whether he then goes on the attack after that. So let's say there's a scenario in which Thomas Froome, Dumoulin and Roglic are all climbing at the front and Roglic goes on the attack and Chris Froome goes with him. If Roglic then stops pulling and Froome keeps going, then that will tell us something. And if Roglic stops going and Chris Froome marks him and stays with him, then that will tell us that Froome is in essence working for Thomas. So I think that's those are the scenarios that we, we should all watch for in these next alpine stages because it's going to tell us a lot about the you know the leadership dynamics going on at Chris going on at Team Sky with Chris Froome.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. And in fact, it'll be very funny if he, if he follows an attack from, say, like uh, Zachary, who's yeah. well <laughs> back. Oh, I'm just covering Zachary's threat. And then he uses that as his little launching pad. Adam Yates is going. I better go with <laughs> him, too. You never know. Him. He can ride back into the race, just <laughs> covering him. But I think that it's a uh, – I think this situation, I think that are, those guys are, are quite different than, say, some of these other classic uh, tourists when we've had – Two kind of competing bulls in the same China shop, you know, the famous tours with Hinault uh, you know, and Le Mans and then Contador with Armstrong in that 2009 tour, where, you know, that was really, they were almost enemies in the same house. Whereas I think in this situation, it's dramatically different. I think communication will be key. I think that um, um, Brailsford and Portal will be insisting that these guys be brutally honest with themselves. Like they, if they say, if Froome says, look, I'm not feeling good or the same with Thomas, they have to let the rest of that, their team know that immediately, not to be riding on pride or, or, you know, Thomas you know, thinks if he can just get over that next call, he can maybe win the tour. He has to be brutally honest and say, you know, I'm, I'm done, ride. And because there is the danger that uh, Team Sky could back the wrong horse in this, in this battle, right? I mean, if, if Thomas is indeed stronger than Froome, you know, they did it already in the 2011 uh, Vuelta España, They were backing Wigo, and
0: Froome was actually stronger, and they didn't win that race. So the guy who would most benefit from a Sky backing the wrong horse right now is Tom Dumoulin. And I've been really impressed with Tom Dumoulin's performance up to this point. He has ridden a really smart calculating race. He has found himself gapped on some of these climbs, and then he just kind of chugs his way back to the front. He doesn't have the explosive power of uh, Chris Froome or Mikel Landa, or some of the other pure climbers, but he has this really smart, calculating way of riding. In fact, Froome talked about it today. He basically said um, he is—he he uses modern numbers, basically saying he's a, he's a power meter guy, and he knows the effort he needs to put in in order to claw back, and each time he does it. So, Hoodie, we've been talking about this for a few days now, but looking at the current racing situation with Tom Dumoulin, a minute 50, Behind Garrett Thomas and only 11 seconds behind Chris Froome, what's the scenario by which Tom Dumoulin wins the Tour de France?
1: Well, already I think this dynamic between Thomas and Froome has actually helped Dumoulin quite a bit, because you know having turned the tables, having Froome already in the jersey and Thomas riding in second place to help Froome, I think Froome would have been able to you know open up even more gaps to Dumoulin. I think the way the dynamics of the racing is. You know, kind of played out between those two guys on Sky has helped Dumoulin kind of stay close to Froome he could kind of mark, mark Froome and Froome you know is not looking quite as fresh as we've seen him in previous tours whereas I agree with 100% Dumoulin has just been surprising every day on the mountains and yeah. you know he's, he's going to be a beast in that final time trial but it was interesting talking to oh, coming in no, no, for landing no, uh, all all right. Right.
0: oh yeah I wonder if they're fans of the Velders podcast hey guys <laughs> I just saw uh, yeah um, but
1: what does Tom, Tom Dumoulin have to do? Well, it's interesting talking to uh, talking to guys on the team, uh, they're just as surprised as everyone else is how well Dumoulin's doing. In fact, I was talking to Luke Roberts, the sport director yesterday, and he said that they had no intentions of racing for GC this year. Dumoulin came in really just kind of with a free ticket, free ride, no pressure. And they've been kind of literally taking this, you know, day by day is what we keep hearing from almost everyone on this tour. And it's true because I don't think anyone really knows how far Dumoulin can go on this tour, or Froome, or even Martin, or excuse me, uh, Garrett Thomas. And um, so the scenario is easy. I mean, Dumoulin just has to follow Froome, have Garrett Thomas crack, and then crush him on the time trial, and he, he, he's, he's the Tour de France winner.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely more. You know, it's easier said than done, but there is right now a pathway. To him winning. And I think that's the exciting part. I think, you know, Roglic is a guy who's a little bit further back, um, but a similar contender for something like that happening. So he right now is in fourth place, 238. That's a lot to have to make back on Garrett Thomas and, you know, more than uh, a minute, basically having to make a minute back on Chris Froome. But, you know, he's a great guy who can time trial. Did you know he used to be a ski jumper, Hoodie? I did not know wow. that. Wow. I did not know that. Was a ski jumper. Holy cow. I feel like we finally wrote a Primoz Roglic story now that didn't have former ski jumper Primoz Roglic uh, in the title. It has to be in there. Yeah, that is true. Former ski jumper almost wins Tour de France. So, Hoodie, talking about Tom Dumoulin, you spoke with his teammate, Chad Haga. Chad is an American rider, one of our favorites. He has ridden with Team Subweb for a number of years now and helped Dumoulin out at the Giro this year, and he helped uh, Tom Dumoulin win the Giro last year. You caught up with him. What did uh, Chad Haga have to say? Yeah,
1: Chad was uh, quite honest about expressing the surprise within the team bus of how well Dum- Dumoulin's doing, uh, but they're also getting a lot of motivation out of it. He says it's helping the whole team just dig deeper. Um, personally for him, this is his uh, Tour de France debut. He's quite excited about that as well. And he said what struck him is always, you know, everyone says it's just the size of the crowds all the media, just the kind of larger ambiance. Obviously, it's a much bigger race than any other race in the calendar. But what struck me was what he said about the Giro d'Italia. You know, the assumption is everyone always just assumes that the Tour is the hardest race of the year. He's saying the Giro is just getting as hard, at least in terms of athletically, in terms of performance, as the Tour. Here's what Chad had to say. Um, I think you guys are kind of, in many ways, almost in a pole position to take on Sky. Yeah. I mean, do you guys, is there any sense that Garrett Thomas might not be able to hold this thing all the way to uh, Paris? So so far he hasn't
2: shown any anything that way, but you think back to the Giro and the dominance that Yates showed uh, up until the third week, the same could happen. It, it could also happen to Tom. Uh, so, <laughs> the old cliche of day by day. <laughs> yeah, exactly, day by day. I mean, there's a reason One everybody says it, time. right.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> how is Tom doing, you know, in terms of uh, just his motivation? Because, you know, he's kind of like from did the yeah. Giro. So, maybe his issues of just how he manages trying to stay fresh or the fatigue's going to set in.
2: I think he, he's totally motivated. He's encouraged by how well the race is going so far. And... Uh, and he just plays off of that, and it builds his his morale
1: further. Okay. Because he looks strong. Yeah. <laughs> he looks really strong. Yeah. I mean, he's basically on even time with Froome. That's encouraging, right? Yeah. It's it's
2: really good. Looking forward to still the time trial to come, and uh, I guess not so many summit
1: finishes left. Because how do you guys play that in terms of you know you Martin? I mean uh, Thomas has that lead, right? Yeah. And, and, the, and the Pyrenees on paper aren't really that hard,
2: are they? Uh, but it's the third week, and <laughs> that's why the Grand tours are spectacular. Yeah, Anybody can implode on any day.
1: Yeah. Uh, how do you think that race changes with Nibali being out? Does that?
2: Uh, it's. I mean, Nibali was a real wild card. He was a guy that's not afraid to blow a race up just to see what happens. Um, so he would have been an ally in that sense uh, if Tom was on a good day, so it's, it's definitely disappointing to see him go.
1: And what's it like your first time i know you've raced against Sky in other races? What's it like seeing the full sky train and it's tour? <laughs> whoa, whoa.
2: <laughs> it's really impressive. It's really impressive. But it's also their pace setting is I mean when I have good legs, it's my style of riding, so I really appreciate it. But uh, but no, it's kinda of daunting to see the whole team there and we're
1: Is it intimidating to, to see, you know, I mean yeah. six six uh six dolphins or whatever it is, you know, leading the way. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, he's realized the strength of their team. So you guys are just trying to park on the back of that, right? I mean, just get Tom in yeah. a good position and let him just go as far as he can go. Yeah, for the moment. Yeah. Um, how are you doing?
2: Uh, I struggled the last couple days. I worry that my Jiro legs are fading, but uh, with any luck, today will be a relatively tranquil day. Yeah, hope, right? I worry to hope too much in that for fear of the disappointment, but... Uh,
1: yeah, maybe, I'll,
2: maybe this is my bottom and everybody else will, will come down to
1: me and it'll be okay. What's it been like those last few days? I mean, we've seen all these uh, guys abandoned, you know, just the, uh, the brutal, the time cut is always that big question. Yeah,
2: it's, it's just been so tough. Um, the, the racing has been aggressive. I mean, with Bryce Wake out there, we couldn't, or Sky wouldn't take it easy yesterday, so we all had to
1: keep pace with that, and it's just been exhausting days. What's been your impressions of the tour so far? You know, you've been at the Giro, you've been at the you've no, every other race of the calendar?
2: It's There's certainly more spectators here, and it's uh, a lot more media, so it's, it seems to be a much bigger production, but it's it's, uh, it's a great bike race to be at. Do you notice the difference between say, the high level at the Giro and the high level here? Actually, n- not so much. Hmm. Like yeah. the, the Giro's biggest days are,
1: are on par here. Okay, Interesting. I guess some people say, you know, the Tour is the hardest race because everyone's at their peak yeah. supposedly, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: But uh, the Giro's definitely had quite a, a great starting field the last few years, so
1: it's, it's also high level. All right, man. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Good luck. Thanks. See you
0: later. All right, yeah, I talked to Chad, too, the type of lap he was, and he was really tired. Um, he, uh, he had a couple comments to say about there, but he was basically like, my feet really hurt. I'm super tired, and you get out of here. I was like, all right, Chad. But um, no, sounds like a good Tour de France debut, and if he can help Dumoulin into yellow be a really good Tour de France debut. So before we get out of here, Hoodie, I have one final question for you, which is, what do you know about Garen Thomas, the man who's currently leading the Tour de France, the man who looks primed to take the Maillot Jean all the way to Paris? What do you know about this guy?
1: I know he loves rugby. Yeah? And I've heard he likes
0: the odd beer. He, Uh He likes a beer. He likes rugby. He's Welsh. He was a track rider, Olympic champion. You know, over the last few days, I have been asking members of the Peloton, members of Team Sky, uh, Team Sky other Sky riders, staffers about Garen Thomas to get a picture of who he is. And I've heard some interesting stories and anecdotes about his past. The, 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 the picture I'm getting is of an extremely talented cyclist who's been good since he was a kid, who's been very serious about cycling, uh, since he was a kid, but who has also found ways to like, um, create a life outside of cycling. And a lot of times you're right that life revolves around cheering for rugby, uh, drinking beer, having a good time and, um, you know, having a pretty good, like balance in, uh, in life between cycling and non-cycling. And one of the people I spoke to about this was Rod Ellingworth who is um one of the head uh trainers at team sky he's the performance manager and he's actually worked with garen thomas since garen thomas was 17 said he first saw garen thomas when thomas was like 13 years old winning some time trial in the, sc- the school boy championships apparently that's the
1: thing well it's interesting about thomas that he really is uh, an in-house product of team sky mm-hmm. um you know they came on board 2010 we wanted to win the Tour de France within 5 years with a British rider with a clean rider and they got Wigo but a lot of people thought it might have been Garrett Thomas that was that guy that they were hoping to nurture over the over the course of his career and now here he is he's almost more part of the team fabric than then Froome even is because he's you know he's 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 been brought up since the track program since he was a teenager
0: yeah and you know in the chats that I've had uh, people have told me that um, people within Team Sky and the orbit around British Cycling would be really happy if uh, Garen Thomas won. Like, like maybe Wink Wink more happy than if other people from this team had been winning uh, because he does have that homegrown talent background. And he is this guy who came up through this, you know, this famed system that 10 or 15 years ago... Um, Wasn't doing that great had these ambitions of doing something someday and now has gotten to that point So um, let's hear this interview with Rod Ellingworth. Um, It's a bit a little bit longer But you know, I asked him a lot about his background with Garrett memories of what Garrett was like as a teenager and why he thinks Garrett has been able to uh, Transition to being a grand tour leader. All right. I'm here with uh, Rod Ellingworth of team sky Um, Rod Talk to me about your history and your relationship with Garrett Thomas. When did it begin and what has your role been with him? Uh, I
3: I think I first saw G was um, on Manchester track. So I would say he was like 13 or 14 as a schoolboy. And it was a friend of mine who said, look at this kid, you know, he's got something. And he could just see he he was riding the individual pursuit. I think it was the schoolboy nationals. um, And he was just just seemed to be floating you know a real good cadence and and he's so narrow at the front end you know he, when he's in that team pursuit in that individual pursuit position he just looks really really aero you know even as a young kid so um that was my first you know first time I saw him um and I, I don't know if he won or not but you could see straight away he had something you know and then obviously <clears throat> he, he was part of the junior program at that time then I was running the under 23 program um <clears throat> you know and they all, as coaches we were all pretty much in line in in, in terms of you know, the, the pathway. Um, so we really started getting involved in, in, in Geraint um, and just what we're just tracking him through. But you could see right from the beginning, you know, he, he got some, he's got some sort of mental capacity on him that is different to others. You know, he really is um, really logical how he thinks, even as a young kid, he had this early. You know, it's not something he's learned. He's, he, this has been installed by his parents. I think when he was a young kid, you know, he makes decisions himself he's confident to make decisions himself he doesn't feel like he has to shout to get his opinion he just when he's ready to talk he'll
0: talk and when he does talk you get really good information from him so was teenage garrett thomas like a serious kid was he a joker how would you describe his well, personality I I,
3: you know i really feel going he's got a really good balance in life you know um, a couple of times where we've had to pull him up uh, from a you know, having a few too many beers in his time. But, um, you know, he, yeah, in, in general, you know, good 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 young lad, knew the balance of life, would have a good time, but really, really serious about his cycling as well. So it's sort of, I've, I always felt, you know, I mean, he was he was living with and around me since he was 17. You know, we, we sort of, uh, we lived in Manchester and then we moved everybody out to Italy as well. So, you know, I was very much involved in his life at that time. <clears throat> but, you know, there wasn't a lot, you know, some of the lads you have to sort of teach them the off-bike skills and sort of just preparing themselves mentally or, you know, Geraint was always pretty good at this, you know, and and, and, and sort of um, ahead of the game in that way, you know, and he was just always, you know, wanting to talk about cycling and asking a lot of questions about cycling and you can, you can just tell all them lads who have been successful that they all ask the right questions and. You know, so you don't. You know, I've never ever had to motivate him. He just totally self-motivated. Yeah.
0: Now, from a physiology standpoint, when he was 17, 18, 19, was Grand Tour leadership something that you thought was possible, or did you see a different pathway for him? Well, I don't, you know, I don't think anybody ever sets out and thinks, you know, oh yeah, that they've got
3: what it takes. I mean, I mean <clears throat> you know, you can test people as much as you want, and, and of course, Geraint would have had good. Physiology, as a, as a young kid, for sure. You know, he was junior world champion. Straight onto the the, the, the national team pursuit squad. You know, first year under twenty three. <clears throat> I think the differences with with them is, um, you know, they, they they've got these stepping stone goals along the way. And you know, Galen obviously wanted to be Olympic champion first before he moved on. I think back when you look back then there wasn't many guys on the road you know there was dave miller there was a few other guys so i don't think anybody's belief was that big in terms of what what british cycling could do on the road you know i think it was we had aspirations we dreamed and of course garrett wanted to be in the tour de france he wanted to ride paris-roubaix he won junior paris-roubaix so i think um you know roubaix was always a bit of a dream of his and the classics and he was always that style of rider you know so and I think over time then, you know, you, you develop and you start to learn more about yourself, and, and that's what that's what he did, you know. Um, so I, I certainly at that point, you know, when I think about, I didn't know Mark Cavendish was going to be world champion or whatever, we just we, we just knew we had a good young group of bike riders who were all moving in the right direction. And, and I always say, you follow riders' dreams. You know, that's our job. You just, just keep moving along with them, and, you know, you, you, who knows where it's going to take them.
0: Any specific memories you have of... You know late teens early twenty, garrett thomas that speak to his personality what kind of person he was maybe an off the bike memory um that you can share you know you know he's, he's a
3: real good guy in a group really really good person in a group i mean you know we had some great times really when we were out in italy there was him and ben swift and these sort of guys who you know they just really enjoy being part of a group but then again going okay on his own you know he can go off and train and really dedicate himself you know, totally and utterly on his own. Um, but I mean, I mean, geez, from Wales, he loves his rugby. Uh, gets passionate about that. He he loves a drink when, when he's when it's time to have a drink. And I think over the years he's matured really well in that sense as well. You know, and and um, you know he's calmed down quite a lot. We certainly, <laughs> we certainly had a few. I remember um, I stopped them from racing the. I, I think it's I think it was called the Welsh Grand Prix, uh, which he'd won the year before. And I knew he was desperate to ride it. You know, Wales, it was the only big hit in Wales at the time. And I think he, they all went out on the piss one night and kept some of the other riders awake. So I stopped them all from racing and he was absolutely gutted, apparently. I, I didn't quite know at the time, but he was gutted, you know, so that's, that's G, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, what about in those first few years of Team Sky? What was uh, G's role on the team? And what were his ambitions, you know, 2009, 10, 11? Well, I, I think that's where, you know, things really started moving.
3: <laughs> but obviously st- he was still very uh, ambitious about the, so um, the, the the Olympic Games, you know, and the team pursuit in 2012. You know, that London Olympics was massive, isn't it? You know, and I think that's that's such a big objective, you know. So that was that was yeah. a real focus at that point was the London Olympics, you know. But within
0: yeah. the team, you know, he was still sort of focused on, uh, was it more classics? Was it the Grand Tours? What were, where were well, his passions? Well,
3: no, I think it was, it was purely just the, um, the Olympics first and foremost, you know. And then and obviously the classics. He did all the classics, didn't he, in that period. And then and then it slowly moved on. I mean, he, he held the white jersey in the Tour in the first 2010, 2011, you know. So, you know, I think he was learning his trade then, you know. In terms yeah.
0: of Grand Tour racing today, the background as a pursuit rider, mm. what advantages does that give for <clears> the modern dynamics uh, well, of Grand Tour? I mean, I,
3: you know, we always used to concentrate a lot on Team Pursuit and Madison as a, as, a, as, as events, you know, and I, uh, my opinion with young riders is that if you can teach them them to events, it, it encompasses a lot of cycling in terms of mental capacity, speed, teammates, uh, race tactics, all sorts of different things, you know. So I think from a from a um, technical point of view, and learning about racing, it's a really good schooling. you know, the only thing you don't learn is, is climbing. But that's one of the reasons why we, we went to Italy as a British team, because it was, you know, every, every day then they started doing, even in recovery days, four or 5k climbs, which you wasn't getting in the UK. So, so that was part of all that development, really. So, yeah.
0: It, at what point in your relationship did you hear him ever talk about <clears throat> wanting to win a Grand Tour?
3: Uh, I'd say it's about four years ago or so, I would have thought, yeah. yeah, Sort of after the Olympics when he started talking, right, okay, I wonder if I could do this, you know, I'd like to have that ambition of looking at a Grand Tour, you know, and he's, you know, when you think he's won Paris, he's won Dauphiné now, you know, he's really chipped away. Um, at them one-week stage races, he knows he's good at them. You know he's got that. You know he's got that time trial ability. He's got. So I think it's all. You know all moving in the right direction. I think yeah. So
0: what has he really had to work on to get to be a grand? I think
3: everything. You know just uh, it's that endurance, that background, that real workload. I think. You know like say going, he's really talented across many spectrums of the sport. So I think he's just had to keep chipping away at every area really. You know and just generally just up his game. You know which is which he's been doing. I think he was good last year, but he crashed, you know. So, yeah, we shall see. Do
0: you think he's capable of winning a Grand Tour? Well, yeah,
3: we, we you know, we back everybody who, who got that ambition. That's why I said, you know, you follow people's dreams and that's that's what's important, I think, for me, anyway. Okay. Right. Right. I really appreciate no, it. Thank you. Okay,
0: well, Hoodie, as we head into these final days in the Pyrenees, you know, we're really coming into the difficult part of the season or difficult part of the race we have three pyrenees and stages in four days including this crazy 65 kilometer um, uphill stage i think we're going to have to get on a gondola to get to the top of it this is to the uh col de Portet. how do you see this race playing out what's your uh what's your final podium for paris
1: yeah i've been talking to quite a few people just around the paddock every morning asking that question and almost everyone tells me it's going to be a race of attrition. They think that you know, you're well into the third week, you know, no one's going to be as fresh as they were in the Alps. People are saying that there won't be these explosive attacks that everyone's hoping for. Everyone's just already on their knees. I think that stage, that short stage, 65Ks, those three calls, could really blow up the race. Uh, that's this I think that's probably the, that I think the winner will be decided on that day because the other two stages, even though quite challenging, don't really present as big as opportunities to attack is, is that stage on Wednesday. I just see the scenario where someone goes over the top, a group goes over the top of that and they hit the final climb and just rail it all the way to the top of that climb. But, you know, it could go all the way down to the individual time trial. I think my, I don't know, I I'm I still, still can't quite decide I, I've made a few bets on who I think going to yeah. win but I, I'm not quite uh, I mean, logic tells me that Froome is going to win just based on their experience based on how well they manage the race based on, uh, I just, you know, I don't think, uh, I think Thomas might run out of gas. I think that Roglic, you know, just not quite uh, Tour de France caliber yet, even though I think he'll be on the podium. And Dumoulin, I mean, I mean I'd mean, i love to see Dumoulin or Garrett Thomas win, but I think Froome's going to do it.
0: Yeah, we made a wager, so uh, Vela News listeners can um, hold us accountable to our wager, $20, or was it 20 euros? Anyway, uh said Froome? Freddie said, Garrett Thomas, come on, Garrett Thomas, go for it. So I think Thomas is going to win. Heart says Tom Dumoulin, head saying Garrett Thomas at this point. So the next time we check in with you guys will be after the time trial, and we will have a much clearer picture of who is going to win this race. So we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on com. Subscribe to the Velo News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, and while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velo News on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash The Velo News podcast is produced by Velo News, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the values podcast are those of the individual and as always we leave you today from this amazing dumpster zone in carcassonne uh, with the brooklyn boogaloo blowout playing the bernard purdy classic soul drum see you later next time